I'm turning this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22 and verse 29. Matthew, chapter 22, verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And our subject is to know the power of God. Now this statement was made to hostile Sadducees who were trying to trap him with their questions. But we're going to take the words as they stand and not really consider the context or the case around them. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And the thing we cannot help but notice is that Christ links the knowing of the scriptures with the knowing of the power of God. If you know the scriptures, then you may well know the power of God. If you do not know the scriptures, there is no likelihood at all that you will know the power of God. By know the scriptures, I don't mean have a deep knowledge of them all, but the essence of the sum total message of the scriptures. If you don't know that, you have no idea what the scriptures of God teach, then you cannot know or taste or have any experience of the mighty power of God. The two things are linked. Without some knowledge of the scriptures, you cannot know the reason for life, the purpose of life. You cannot know it. You can only know what the atheists tell you, that there is no purpose in life, so far as we can tell, that you're here today and you're gone tomorrow, and one day the entire world will blow up and disintegrate, and there'll be nothing left. And every moment you've ever lived will be seen in that moment to be pointless, unproductive, for no purpose at all. Without a revelation from God, an information from him, the scriptures, we cannot know the purpose of life. We cannot know what God intended. We cannot know his plans. We cannot know how he regards us. We cannot even understand the human condition. What makes us the people we are? The mysteries of mankind. These creatures higher than the animals who have the knowledge of right and wrong a moral consciousness, and yet, strangely, cannot live in accordance with their knowledge of right and wrong, cannot conform to the standards of conscience. What a mystery. How do you explain that? That in all the history of mankind, we have never managed to do that and to follow the code which is written within us. In our constitution, no explanation of the mystery of man or his condition if you don't know the scripture. 
There's no theory on earth outside the scripture that can adequately explain these things. The things we do not know. We see an utterly confused world. What a strange world it is. Mankind in possession of good things. Mankind with capability of brilliance of thought and inventiveness, wonderful attributes and capacities and gifts. And yet, in decade after decade, century after century, mankind in utter confusion, mankind wallowing in failure, mankind at war, men and women exploiting one another, every kind of misery and unkindness, a capacity for love and a capacity for hate, a capacity for success in some things, a capacity for failure also, a capacity to succeed in material things and all at sea when it comes to the soul and eternity and spiritual things. How do you explain man? Without the scriptures? How do you know whether you can be reconciled with God without the scriptures? What do you know about the power of God? How he reveals his power? Where he shows it? How he operates it? What do you know about the history of man? What do you know about future things? What developments will bring? What trend will seize the collective mind of people in the years to come? Whether we're going to plunge into great moral depths, we can see it step by step, the alternative morality dominating all around us, the old values being shunted out and even criminalized, and the anti-values coming in increasingly, we see the tremendous self-confidence of man experimenting with things that have been stable for generations, outlawing the good, legalizing the evil. Where's it going? What will happen? How long have we to go? Will God intervene? What about all the catastrophes that are now gathering in pace? Are they predicted? Are they going to happen and increase? We know nothing, nothing. We can forecast nothing, not even terribly accurately, tomorrow's weather. We cannot do anything or know anything without the scriptures, yet how proud we are and how much we hate the idea of a revelation from God. Why, we scoff at it instinctively. We won't have that. We won't hear of that. Modern times, so much pride jostling with so much ignorance in us. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Well, revelation is essential. We must have a revelation of God. And we're often rehearsing these things, but it should be obvious to us. We are such, yes, we, we are endowed with many capacities, but also we are very inadequate creatures 
as human beings. We're finite. How can we know about God, who's infinite? We're material. How can we know about God, who is immaterial? We're so limited, finite, flesh. We live in a box of flesh and time. We cannot know the mind of God. It is obvious that if he's created us for a purpose, and if he has a plan, and if he has anything for us, he must speak in to our world. He must reveal himself to us. It's the most obvious thing there is. Well, then what form must his revelation take? If God speaks, what form will it take? Oh, say many people, and it's surprising. They say, I suppose, through religions. And that's a very common answer today. Even in the most intellectual circles, there will be some sort of message will emerge from all religions. They will have some things in common, and there will be God's revelation. But there can be no greater nonsense than that. If God is there, and if he is the perfect and holy God, the sovereign God, how could he reveal himself through a mass of utterly contradictory and confusing religions? That's a nonsense. Why, the differences between world religions are enormous, and it's obvious that much of human invention and construction is there. There are religions, as you know, that are pantheistic, one in particular, a very great one. And God, well, there isn't really a God in uh, distinctive terms. God is coexistence with the universe. Everything is God, and God is everything. He is not a personal being at all. Is coexistent with all that exists and all matter. And then there is the notion that God is a personal being, knowable, approachable, mighty, of one mind and one understanding. Well, they're utterly contradictory. They have nothing in common. And you can see a great chasm between all the religions and religions that Men create 19 to the dozen. They have certain things in common sometimes. If there is a God, our God, they say, some of them say there are many gods, thousands of gods. Wicked gods, gods like human beings who thrust at each other and injure each other and murder each other. How, how different from the one true and living God. Such contradictions, it's a madness. No, God is a God of truth, surely. He will not reveal himself to 101 contradicting religions of different ideas, conflicting ideas. Oh, well, then it's a very popular thing for people to say that knowledge of God will come through the conscience. But that's absurd, too. 
because the conscience can be manipulated. It has a standard written into it. And as you go through life, you can adjust it, you can change it, you can reprogram it to a very large extent. What authority would that have to give you information about God and his being and his purpose and his plans and his ways? Oh, no. If there is to be a revelation, really there is only one thing for it. God must publish a book. A book? Why a book? Well, if it isn't a book, if it's something oral, by word of mouth, there'll be so many versions of it. The story will change from person to person. It'll be distorted and mangled overnight. No, if God has a revelation, it must be in some permanent recorded form. That's the Bible. Those are the scriptures of the Christian and Jewish tradition. This is the word of God, the book of God. God's book stands alone, head and shoulders above anything else that claims to be a divine book. It alone consistently speaks as from God. Other so-called holy books do not even do that in nine cases out of ten. It alone can be claimed to be without error. I'll come to errors in a moment. It alone is consistent. Though given and delivered through many spokesmen over many years, Yet its great themes run through cables right through the Bible from beginning to end. A consistent message, a consistent picture of God and his attributes and his mind and his plans. A consistent picture of the way of reconciliation with God and forgiveness and life and union with him. A consistent picture and of prophecy of Christ and how he would come and what he would do. A consistent pattern of prophecies about all of time and what God will do to the very end of time and how Christ will come again. There's nothing like the Bible for these characteristics, these great self-authenticating characteristics and the Lord Jesus Christ says therefore ye do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God how blunt the Bible is how direct how ready to tell us what we least want to hear about our sin and our need and our foolishness before God how much it deals with God in page after page. It's about him. Oh, you say, no, there are history books. Yes, but they're all about God. How God relates to man. How he rewards faith. How he punishes evil. He is really always center stage in every book. It's a book of God. It's a book about God. 
There's nothing to be compared with the scriptures, the only authentic possible revelation from God. Errors, aren't there errors? You can go on the internet. You can look up all sorts of things. You'll find people on the internet pointing out errors in the Bible, the so-called alleged discrepancies. This contradicts this, that contradicts that, this is wrong, that's wrong. And the vast majority of these things, oh no, it's the objections that are wrong and mistaken. There is a perfectly sound answer to all these so-called complaints. And the writer doesn't know it. The writer is ignorant. He's parroting something. I think it's just an example. There's the father of history, Herodotus, 5th century BC. There's the great Alexandrian library just a little before that time with its records and its histories. Time after time, these 6th and 5th century BC authors talk about biblical events, biblical places, biblical characters. And so often, they spell the names entirely differently from how you have them in the Bible. The names of the places, the names of the persons. And for years, cynics would say, that biblical record is inaccurate. They can't even spell The people who wrote those records clearly were not there at the time. They're not contemporary. They didn't know. They were writing fiction. They were making it up. We turn to the great scholars of the 6th and the 5th centuries and we find the spellings correctly given. Oh, yes. That kind of criticism seemed very convincing to many people years and years ago. Then you get the great period of 19th century archaeological discovery coming right up to present times when so many things were brought from under the sands, monuments, steels, inscriptions, manuscripts, and lo and behold, every single time something new came out of the earth, the biblical spellings were shown to be the correct ones. And the 6th, 5th century historians of Egypt and Greece were wrong. But they seemed almost contemporary, just a hundred years after some of the events. But they got it all wrong. Now we have the monuments themselves. Take the chronicles of the Chaldean kings covering the Babylonian period, the captivity and so on, all those portions of Bible history. Take them. Bible spellings, all wrong. Can't be true, must be fiction, must be Hebrew myth and nonsense. Well, most of those Chaldean chronicles were actually unearthed 150 years ago, but they didn't get deciphered interpreted until the 1950s. And here in London, the late Professor Donna Wiseman translated most of the chronicles of the Chaldean kings 
And here in the 1950s, we were finding how those kings spelled their own names. And every time the Bible was right. And the later historians of Alexander and Herodotus were wrong. That's a detail I'm afraid it's taken me a few minutes. But that's the Bible. Always it's vindicated. Always it's shown to be correct. In all these things, there is nothing to be compared with the Bible. And to this very day, you'll find some of these old complaints resurrected on the internet, where the writers, the contributors of them are so ignorant, they don't know that they've been demolished years ago. There's nothing to be compared with our divinely inspired Bible. If you know the Bible, you know the power of God. You read the history of creation. You read how God took a nation, Israel, the Jewish nation, and he dealt with them in a special way to reveal himself and his truth to the world. And he made a covenant with them And he showed his love toward them. And he demonstrated his power in their history. And he protected them and gave them teachers and gave them a manner of worship. And through those history books of the Bible, you see how those who exercised faith in God were rewarded and those who disobeyed him and sinned against him were punished. And that's the purpose of the history of the Bible, to show you how God relates to man and how he deals with us. Then there were the prophecies of the Bible. Prophecies, and indeed even the history books tell you about the worship God gave, how there must be a sacrifice for sin. There must be an atonement made for sin. The holiness of God demands the punishment of sin. If God is to forgive us, then somebody must pay the price. There must be a great coming sacrifice. And Christ was predicted. His person, what he would be like, his work, what he would do, how he would be the God-man, God come from heaven, how he would suffer and die on Calvary's cross to make an atonement for lost men and women. All of it predicted. And then Christ comes, the great center point, not mathematically, but in reality, center point of the Bible, and he performs his great saving work. And we read these things, how he lived for us, worked his mighty miracles of compassion, demonstrating the loving kindness of God, demonstrating his divinity, giving picture lessons of how he would not only heal bodies but heal souls and raise us from our dead state and restore us. Then he suffers and dies on Calvary. And you read the record of that, how God from on high the Father poured upon his own eternal Son the punishment of sin due to all who would repent and be saved, punished him instead of them so that they could be forgiven. How he rose from the dead. You read the book of Acts, how Christ still lives. Of course, he's in heaven now. 
that his power is poured out and the church is founded and souls are saved and brought to him in great numbers and wonderful things take place and the apostles could even work very similar miracles to those of Christ to demonstrate that he was with them and what they said about him was true. All this you read in, if you read the Bible, you begin to glimpse the power of God. But supremely, you get it and you experience it because you come yourself. You've read the Bible. Your mind is opened. You realize you're a sinner. You feel your desperate need of forgiveness and renewal, conversion, a new life, and a walk with God. And you come to him on your knees, and you yield up your life to him, and you cry out for forgiveness for all your sin. You give him your life, and you taste his power, because he changes you within so completely. So that sin that was your best friend becomes your worst enemy. So that the things you used to love you see are tinsel and rubbish and you begin to love God and love his word and love him and pray to him and walk with him and look forward to him and serve him. What a difference it makes to you. It changes you entirely. You're now tasting the power of God. You're a living experience of it. Where you were mean, you're now generous. Where you were hostile, you're now sensitive and affectionate. You have greater power of love and longing for good things. You're a different person, a new nature. Your soul has been brought to life. You can pray and cry out to God. And he hears you and he answers you. You know the power of God because you came to know the scripture and it moved you and it drew you to Christ and you believed in him and you repented to him and you tasted the power of God. And there's so much more even to come as you go down life's journey and you're man or woman of prayer and you bring before him your needs and your husband, your wife, your sons, your daughters and every trial, every calamity, every disappointment, every test you bring to the Lord and you have so many answers and so much help and so much blessing that you know the kindness and patience of the Lord It's all the power of God that you're tasting and experiencing. And one day, the greatest thing imaginable. Well, I don't know. But you may be on your deathbed. And you may know life is ebbing away. And you're at the end of the journey. And the moment comes and your eyes close for the last time. And the light of this world goes out. And as it does, the light of the next comes on. And your greatest journey has begun.
And there you're carried from time into eternity, from the material realm to the immaterial realm. And light comes on that is so glorious. And you see wonderful things. And you're brought into the great reception hall of the kingdom of God. And you're met by so many people living in glory and happiness and bliss. And you'll be meeting Christ in all his glory, the risen, glorified Lord. And you'll be his for all eternity. How do you know the power of God? You were introduced to it all through the scriptures. Let it never be said of you, dear friends, ye do err because ye know not the scriptures nor the power of God. That was the state I was in when I was a youngster. So confident, so certain, and I didn't know I was a bankrupt soul, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. All I knew of the scriptures was what was taught in school. And I boarded at a school, schools, they were religious in foundation. So you knew all about the Bible, but you didn't really know anything about the Bible. It never registered with you. You paid no attention to it. You didn't respect it. So I was an ignoramus as a young fellow. And I certainly didn't know anything about the power of God, the power of this world, how wonderful it is, how tremendous it all is, the bright lights, the inventions, the scope. But without knowing the scriptures, you don't know the power of God, the meaning, the purpose, what God has done, a wonderful thing that Christ has done in purchasing salvation for us. You need the scriptures. And you need humbleness of mind. And you need to come and seek and find the Lord and trust in him. And then, then, then alone, you know, not just the power, but all the loving kindness of the Lord. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night and help us. Open our minds and our hearts to thy word. Teach us these things, O Lord. Draw us to thyself that we may yield to thee and find thee and know thee. Lord, grant us the power of God in salvation. We ask it in our dear Saviour's name, for his sake. Amen.